0: Welcome to Lady Ripper. I'm Sarah, and I'm excited to talk about today's episode. But before we start, I want to thank everyone who has been listening to this podcast. It has been amazing how much support I have received, and I'm so grateful to each of you who have faithfully listened to each episode. Today, I'm going to be talking about the disappearance of Brittany Drexel. This wasn't the case I was planning on releasing this week, but with the breaking news, I felt like now was the time to tell her story. If you listen to the minisode ripped from the headlines, you will know that after 13 long years, Brittany's remains were finally found, and her alleged killer has finally been arrested. She has long been believed to be a victim of sex trafficking, but tragically the truth has finally come out. I am sure finding out that there is no longer any hope that she is alive is very difficult for her family and friends, and my thoughts are with them as they start to grieve this horrible news. In this episode, I am going to tell you the story of how she went missing and how we got to this point today. If we go back to 2009, Brittany Drexel is a typical 17-year-old teenager in Chilai, New York, which is just outside of Rochester. She is a vivacious and spunky young girl. Her family described her as always wanting to be the center of attention. She is a soccer star at her high school, and even though she is only 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, she is a force to be reckoned with. Brittany also loves doing her hair and makeup, and in every picture you see of her, she is smiling and looks gorgeous. Not everything in her life was a fairy tale, though. Home life was a struggle. Brittany never really had much of a relationship with her real father, John, because her parents had her when they were really young and then divorced at a young age as well. Her biological father moved to Florida, and it wasn't until the last year before she disappeared that she had any kind of relationship with him. He was devoted to her, though, and wanted to get to know her and make up for any lost time from when she was a teenager. When Brittany was around two or three, Her mom, Dawn, married Chad Drexel. She considered him to be her real dad and had a great relationship with him. She sometimes struggled with her mom and often they butted heads, but they would always apologize and go back to getting along. She had two younger siblings, Marissa and Camden, and would do anything for them. In 2009, Brittany's parents were going through a divorce and their house was going into foreclosure and she was taking it pretty hard. Her dad had moved out of the house, her grades started to slip, and she was suffering with some depression. In an episode of Disappeared on the Investigation Discovery Channel, they reported that twice she overdosed on prescription pain pills. Her mom, Dawn, said that she was just reaching out for some help. As winter came to an end, Brittany knew exactly what would help to get her out of their funk. A trip to Myrtle Beach for spring break with some older friends. It was a long-standing tradition for chi seniors to go to Myrtle Beach for a spring break. Brittany's mom, however, immediately says no when Brittany begs to go. First, she tells Brittany she did not know the girls going on the trip. They were all seniors and over 18. Brittany was just a junior and not old enough to be going on a trip like that. Not to mention there would be no adult supervision on the trip, and she says she just has a bad feeling about it. Britney begs and begs and begs to go until it turns into a huge fight and Brittany gets so upset she leaves and has her boyfriend, John Greico, take her to a friend's house. When Brittany calms down, she calls her mom and apologizes for fighting and asks one last time to go on the trip. The answer is still no, and so Brittany asks for a compromise. Can she stay at her friend's house for the weekend if she promises to keep in touch via cell phone? Dawn feels like it is a good compromise as long as she can talk to the friend's mom to make sure it is okay. Dawn talks to a woman on the phone and then relaxes knowing that Brittany was going to go have a good weekend with friends. Except Brittany had no intention of staying in Rochester. She was planning on making the 14-hour drive down to Myrtle Beach for some fun in the sun. It had not been her friend's mom on the phone. It had been one of her friends. Now, Brittany's friend must have been very convincing because I feel like Donna is a pretty savvy woman and wouldn't have been duped that easily. Brittany and three of her friends pack up and make the drive down to South Carolina on Wednesday, April 24th, 2009. She is traveling with Jennifer Oberer, Philip Oberer, and Alana Lippa. She invites her boyfriend, John, but he can't go because he has to work. He promises he will stay in touch with her the whole time. I think it is important to say that Brittany wasn't really close friends with any of these people. They didn't hang out in her friend group, but they were older and invited her to go with her them, so she wanted to go. You will see later on, they didn't truly care much about her at all. If they had been better friends, or actually friends with her at all, this probably would have never happened. It makes me mad how poorly they treated her and how little they helped Brittany's family when she disappeared. After the long drive to Myrtle Beach, they immediately start to enjoy everything it has to offer. They hit up the bars and clubs and the beach, but Brittany soon starts to feel excluded. She isn't much of a partier and she doesn't do drugs, which is what everyone seemed to be interested in doing. Feeling very uncomfortable, Brittany decides to venture out on her own. While she was wandering down the boulevard, she runs into a friend from Rochester, Peter Brozowitz. They have known each other for about two years, and she is excited to finally see a friendly face. They make plans to meet the next day. On April 25th, Brittany meets up with Peter and some of his friends at the beach in the morning. That same day, Dawn checks in on her daughter. It is a beautiful 80 to 90 degree day in Rochester, so when Brittany responded that she was at the beach, she doesn't think twice. She assumes that Brittany is up at Lake Ontario enjoying the good weather. She still has no idea that Brittany is six states away, lounging on a completely different beach. Dawn tells her that she loves her, and Brittany sends a terror text saying, I love you too, mom. I'll see you tomorrow. Dawn has no way of knowing that this will be the last time she will ever talk to her daughter again. Brittany meets up with Peter and his friends at a place called Club Kryptonite that night, and then heads back to her hotel to change into a new pair of shorts, that she borrowed from her friend Jennifer. At 8pm, Brittany starts making the mile and a half walk to Peter's hotel, and while she is walking, she texts her boyfriend John. She tells him what a miserable time she is having, and how badly she wants to go home. She tells him how much she misses him, and how excited she is to see him again. John encourages her to try and have a good time, and since she is already down there, she should make the most of it, and try and have some fun. Brittany arrives at the Blue Water Resort to hang out with Peter and his friends, and hasn't been there more than 10 minutes before she gets a text from Jennifer. Jennifer wants her shorts back right away, and they get into a small fight about it. Bothered, Brittany agrees that she'll make the long walk back to Bar Harbor Hotel to give Jennifer back the shorts. Now, a few things really bother me about this part of the story. First, why would her supposed friend let her borrow shorts only to ask for them back less than an hour later? We also find out later that they were actually planning on changing hotels that night and leaving Brittany alone at the Bar Harbor Hotel. So were they doing this just to be cruel? I certainly think so. The next thing that bothers me is that Brittany was hanging out in a room full of guys when she had to turn around to go give the shorts back. By that time, it was almost 9 p.m. It wasn't very late, but she was 17 years old, 5 feet tall, and 100 pounds. She was tiny. Why didn't a single guy step up and offer to walk with her? Also, Peter had a car with him, which we know because once Brittany turns up missing, Peter and his friends hastily drive home in the middle of the night. Brittany's friends suck. Not a single one had her back at all. If one single person had stepped up and actually been a decent human being, she probably would have never disappeared. But we'll never actually know. Now back to the story. Brittany is walking back to her hotel where she is caught on surveillance camera. This is the last time she is ever seen alive. She is texting John nonstop until suddenly she isn't anymore. Soon, 10 minutes go by, then 30, and finally an hour goes by without any word from Brittany. John starts to get nervous. He is always in constant contact with Brittany, and going this long without hearing from her is very unusual. He continues to text her and ask where she is, and then threatens to tell her mom where she really is at. When there continues to be no response, he makes the tough decision to call Don. Dawn is furious when she learns that Brittany has gone to Myrtle Beach without her permission. But that anger soon turns to fear when she cannot get a hold of Brittany after multiple attempts. Every possible bad situation is flashing through her mind as Brittany's phone continues to ring and ring. She remembers that bad feeling she got in the pit of her stomach when Brittany first told her about the trip, and suddenly she is even more worried. Soon, each call stops ringing and goes straight to voicemail. Dawn tries calling the friends Brittany drove down with, but Jennifer, Alana, and Philip won't answer her phone calls or voicemails and never even offer to help look for her. Later, when asked why he didn't offer to help or why he didn't walk her to a hotel, Peter just said, I'm not a babysitter. Like I said, not great friends at all. Around 11 p.m. on the evening of the 25th, Don calls the Rochester police. Unfortunately, because Brittany is in Myrtle Beach, which is out of their jurisdiction, their hands are tied and they can't do anything to help. Don reaches out to a family friend who lives about three hours away from Myrtle Beach. He drives up there and begins the frantic search for Brittany. That next morning, Don, John, and some friends rush down to Myrtle Beach and file a missing persons report. Chad stays at home to watch over the kids. Once in Myrtle Beach, the police at first tells the family that Brittany is probably a typical spring breaker who either ran away or who will turn up in the morning. But when they learn about Peter's swift departure in the middle of the night, they immediately get suspicious and start an investigation. They pull surveillance tapes to look for timestamps to corroborate Peter's story about Brittany leaving to give Jennifer back her shorts, They want to know why he and his friends left in the middle of the night once they found out Brittany was missing. The boys had left at 2 a.m. in a hurry, leaving behind clothes and their security deposit. Then when Peter got home, he got a lawyer. Suspicious, right? But ultimately it leads to nothing, and Peter is not named a suspect at that time. With the surveillance tapes being a dead end and her friends having little information to offer... The police decide to pull Brittany's cell phone records. Immediately, they learn that the last place her cell phone pinged was in McClellanville, South Carolina, which is about 50 miles away from Myrtle Beach. McClellanville is next to the Santee River and is surrounded with wildlife that includes alligators, snakes, and wild hogs. It is a very swampy, uninhabitable area, definitely not somewhere Brittany would have gone willingly. The only people who would be out in that area are fishermen. And locals. The police do an exhaustive search for 11 days, bringing in helicopters, search dogs, sonar, and ATVs. The Q Center for Missing Children even get involved with the search. Hundreds of people came out to help search, but Brittany, nor no trace of her, could be found. Don and the family go back home to Rochester, hoping that someday soon, a hint or a whisper of Brittany will be found. At the end of December, 2009, a glimmer of hope peeked through the darkness. Just north of where the initial searches for Britney had been, a pair of sunglasses were found. They are sent away for DNA testing, but ultimately are determined to not be Britney's due to their lack of mud and wear on them. It is at this time that Britney's family began to think that she might have become a victim of human trafficking. In 2016, the family said that they believed Brittany was a victim of human trafficking. Human trafficking, especially for sex, has become a huge problem in the U.S. In fact, Horry County, where Myrtle Beach is, is the number one county in South Carolina for human trafficking. There has been 139 cases in South Carolina this year. Don even sets up Britney's Little Angels, which is a nonprofit organization that fundraises for victims of human trafficking and families with missing family members. Don said this about the foundation. I want something that can carry on her legacy so that no one ever forgets her. The Myrtle Beach police, however, don't believe that Britney is a victim of human trafficking. A representative for the department said, Anything is certainly a possibility until we know exactly what happened, but there is no evidence that to show that human trafficking has occurred. While there are differences of opinion about whether Brittany is a victim of human trafficking or not, her case remains open, but goes ice cold. On April 9, 2010, the police announced that they have three to four persons of interest in the case, but do not release any further information about them. They also announced that they believe Brittany to be deceased, but will not go into details about why they believe that to be the case. Video footage of Brittany is also released to the public. It had been taken by a college student that Brittany had met while in Myrtle Beach. They had hung out together for several hours before she ran into
1: Peter on Oceanside
0: Boulevard. The video does not generate any tips, unfortunately. The case goes a couple years without any leads until August 2011, when convicted sex offender Raymond Moody is declared a person of interest. In 1983, he kidnapped and raped 8-year-old Carrie Harding. She was walking to school when a man grabbed her by the hair, put his hand over her mouth, and pulled her into his car, then sexually assaulting her. He admitted to raping Harding and six other young girls. Moody was given a 40-year sentence, but only served 21 years of it. In 2011, a search of his hotel room was conducted, but nothing pertaining to Brittany's case was found. Nothing else was said at the time about why he was considered to be a person of interest. Brittany's aunt, Carrie Drexel, said this about the investigation into Raymond Moody. There is evidence out there that it is more than just one person. Yes, I understand the past things of what he has done, but there is no evidence
1: or anything
0: that was found at all. There are other persons of interest that they are not looking into thoroughly. Now, I want you to remember this name as it will come back to haunt us in a very major way. Then, in August of 2016, there is big news in the case and a suspect is finally named. But the news is not what anyone wanted to hear. Brittany has been allegedly abducted, gang raped, fatally shot, and then dumped into an alligator pit. Where was this horrible information coming from? Jailhouse snitch Kwan Brown. He reportedly saw Brittany several times during a four-day period at a stash house in McClellanville. The stash house was used to keep drugs, guns, money, and girls like Britney who would be sold to the highest bidder. Brown accuses Timothy Deshawn Taylor at age 16 of playing a role in Brittany's disappearance. For the purposes of this episode and to avoid any confusion, I will call him Deshawn, which is the name he went by to family and friends. Deshawn was currently in court asking to be released while awaiting federal robbery charges of a McDonald's where he was the getaway driver. One man was shot twice during the robbery by one of the other robbers. FBI agent Garrick Muniz, who took Brown's jailhouse confession, testifies that Deshawn is a danger to the public and should not be released. Information taken from the court transcript from Deshawn's bond hearing, Muniz says that Brown alleges in, that two, in 2009, while at the Stash House, he saw Deshawn and several other men sexually assaulting Brittany. When she tried to escape out of the front door, she was pistol whipped and brought back into the house. Brown says that he went outside at that time and that Deshaun's father, Sean Taylor, went inside. Brown then heard two shots and assumed that it was Brittany that had been shot for trying to escape. He said that her body was wrapped up and taken away to be discarded into an alligator pit. The original plan was to trick Brittany out, but after the intense media coverage of her disappearance, they got nervous and killed her instead. Brittany's whole ordeal lasted four days. The FBI searches the area, but Brittany's remains are not found. Munez accuses Deshaun as being the person who actually abducted Brittany off of the street and bringing her to McClellanville, and his dad, Sean Taylor, as the one who shot her. Now, something I found really interesting in the court transcripts that I hadn't found anywhere in my research was that Deshaun only has one arm. He had a childhood accident at age 4 and had to have it amputated. Also, according to his mother, he has spends his days going to church, watching his bedridden grandmother, playing with his two kids, and working hard to provide for his whole family. So he is too busy to be out committing any crimes. Right. <laughs> Next, in March of 2017, the FBI searches a wooden area called Foxfire Court, which is just outside of Georgetown, but keep tight-lipped about evidence, if any, has been found. Four months later, Deshaun pleads guilty to a federal robbery charges. As part of his plea bargain, he can get reduced charges if he can pass a polygraph test, but he doesn't. He fails pretty miserably, in fact. When asked if he knows who was involved in Brittany's disappearance, he says no. Then he asked if he ever saw Brittany in person, and again, he answers no. Both times the machine said he was being deceptive, and Deshaun ends the session. In 2018, Deshaun is released on bail, pending a U.S. Supreme Court decision about the ruling to allow dual prosecution of the same crime. You see, there is a rule called double jeopardy, or the law that you can't be prosecuted for the same offense more than once. Deshawn had already been charged and convicted on the state level for the McDonald's robbery. The loophole that had allowed him to be charged again, and therefore be held in prison for Brittany's case without substantiating evidence, was that they had charged him on a federal level. It is my understanding that if it is in a different level of court, you can be charged again, although that rarely happens. After Deshawn is released from prison, he is placed under house arrest in order to wear a GPS monitoring device. In 2001, he is back in court for violating his parole by testing positive for marijuana, meth, and oxycodone. His mother pleaded on his behalf saying, please stop associating him with Brittany Drexel. It has not been proven that my son did anything with this young lady. The case goes cold until May 4, 2022. Authorities announce that they have made an arrest in the Brittany Drexel case, and it is not anyone who we ever expected. They arrest Raymond Moody, the sex offender who was initially named a person of interest in the case in 2011. He has been charged with obstruction of justice and placed on a $100,000 bond. No other details are made public as to why his name has suddenly re-emerged in the case. Eight days later, on May 12, 2022, just one week ago at the time of recording this episode, authorities announced that remains have been discovered in Georgetown. It is two and a half miles away from where Moody had been living in 2009 when Brittany disappeared. On May 16th, officials identify the remains to be those of Brittany Drexel, and Moody is formally charged with murder, rape, and kidnapping. He is remanded without bail into custody. This is tragic news to the friends and family of Brittany. It has been a long 13 years of searching, waiting, and hoping for everyone. In a news conference, Don Drexel says, "This is truly a mother's worst nightmare." I am mourning my beautiful daughter, Brittany, as I have been for 13 years. But today it is bittersweet. We are much closer to the closure and the peace that we have been desperately hoping for. She ends her statement saying, Today marks the beginning of a new chapter. The search for Brittany is now pursuit for Brittany's justice. Details about how Brittany disappeared are still vague at this time but authorities have said that they believe Brittany was abducted right off the street and taken to Santee River, where she was sexually assaulted, strangled, killed, and then moved to Old Town Avenue, which is in Georgetown County. Police didn't indicate why Moody initially came across their radar in 2011 as a person of interest. They just said that there was not enough evidence to make him a suspect. They said they were able to get info. Evidence needed to arrest Moody from tips and leads that they received recently. The FBI has announced that Deshaun Taylor is no longer considered a suspect in the disappearance or murder of Brittany. Taquan Brown admits to the FBI that he concocted the whole story. He cha- his story changed more than once, saying at times that he saw Brittany on three to five different occasions. He even claimed to have witnessed her actual murder. Upon learning about Moody's arrest and the discovery of Brittany's remains, Deshawn's family holds a press conference and says, He has been legally cleared of these accusations, and the public is now learning the truth. But the damage has been done. His name and face will forever be linked to Brittany Drexel because of a lie. That pain is beyond words. We're not relieved. We're enraged that it took this long. I'm curious if his federal robbery charges will be dropped now since the main reason he was charged was because of his alleged involvement in Brittany's disappearance. I guess we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out. There are so many what-ifs in this case. What if she had had better friends and wasn't alone that night? What if Peter had given her a ride? What if her boyfriend had gone with her to Myrtle Beach? What if Moody had stayed in prison all these 40 years? Would any of them have made a difference, or was she destined to have the same fate? We will never know, I guess, but it's an interesting thought. Brittany was 17. She did something a little, or a lot rebellious, it depends on your opinion. She was only looking to escape from the sadness and drama at home, and the worst thing possible happened to her. She met a monster of the worst kind, who should have never been let out of prison to begin with. I can't imagine what her last moments were like, and I'm sure there is still much of her story left to tell. Dawn and Chad Drexel are planning to have Celebration of Life memorials in both Rochester and Myrtle Beach. They want Brittany to be remembered as a bright and spirited young woman with a heart of gold. Now that we know at least who killed Brittany and have found her remains, were you surprised at who actually did it? I know I sure was. I know for the past several years, I have, as I've followed the case, I've always wondered why they just haven't arrested Deshawn for her murder, because it seemed pretty clear to me that he was the one who did it. But I guess it goes to show that you can never trust jailhouse informants. I don't know why some mess with other people's lives like that and accuse them of things like murder and rape. Did Dequan Brown have some personal beef with Deshawn? He deserves his prison time for the the crimes that he has committed, but he just definitely did not deserve to be labeled a murderer and a rapist when he never even met Brittany. Um, I'm not going to post any pictures of Deshaun on the Instagram uh, today because I don't want to further perpetuate the idea that he has any involvement in this case. Now let's go on to Raymond Moody. Where the heck did he come from? So little information is out there about him right now. I'm sure reporters are lined up to get exclusive interviews with him. I just really want to know why he crossed their radar twice and why the first time they moved on from him. I also want to know how he got Brittany into a car with him. Did he forcefully take her? Did he tell her that he was a talent scout looking for models? She was into amateur modeling and might have gotten to a car if Someone told her that they were looking for someone for a photo shoot. I, I feel like if you tried to force her into a car, she would have fought back because even though she was 5'2 and only 100 pounds, she was like a ferocious, ferocious little, little girl. Um, I'm 5'2 and I can put up a pretty good fight um, when I need to. Even if she fought back, though, he must have overtaken her, and that's just a sad thought. If there's a trial, then maybe we'll get these answers. I don't I don't know. Maybe he'll take a plea deal and spare the family trial. We can only hope that. Now, I don't want to be insensitive to the family by demanding they share all the intimate last moments of Brittany's life at this time. Let's let them give time. Let's give them time to grieve because we know that what's coming next in the upcoming months and years with trials and more media coverage, it's going to get even more difficult. Um, Let's keep them in our thoughts and and be grateful that Brittany has been found and that they can finally start to grieve. Thank you for listening today about the disappearance and murder of Brittany Drexel. Please follow me wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me and check out pictures about the case today on Instagram at Lady Ripper Podcast and my Twitter at Lady Ripper Pod. Tune in later this week for a new mini-sode of Ripped from the Headlines where I talk about true crime news you might have missed. Bye!